What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast. It's New York Sports Talk and Long Suffering Fan. Your host, Mike Phillips. I got a good show for you this week. We are getting ready for the Subway Series here on the podcast. Round one, Mets, Yankees at City Field on Tuesday and Wednesday. I'm going to be joined just a bit by Matt Musico of MLB Daily Dingers. We're going to preview the Subway Series, some of the Mets and the Yankees. So I get you ready for this series coming up in just a bit. Also going to start covering the captain, the Derek Jeter docuseries on ESPN. I'm going to be joined by Nick Frietta, a friend of mine, co-host of the Sky Guys podcast, huge Yankee fan. We're going to talk about parts one and two that aired last week. Part one aired after the home run derby. Part two aired on Thursday night. We're going to talk about both of those. Sort of look ahead to what we could be looking forward to with part three and four, which are going to be airing this Thursday at nine o'clock on ESPN. So, Keep an eye on all that. If you like what you hear on the Justin and the Suffering Podcast, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all usual suspects. Simply search for Just and the Suffering, your favorite podcast platform. You'll find our episodes there. Feel free to your feedback and star as well. Help with the podcast even better going forward. So check out the YouTube page, Mike Phillips on YouTube. Video versus these conversations with Matt and Nick are going to be on the YouTube channel. Again, Mike Phillips on YouTube. And without any further ado, we're going to get to our opening tip. We're going to take a look at the MLB trade deadline. It's coming up in about a week. We'll see what we have to look forward to right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. All right, opening tip time. Talk about the trade deadline coming up one week from today, 6 o'clock Eastern on April, August 2nd here. And there are a lot of big names on the block. The biggest, though, is still Juan Soto. We talked about him a little last week. He has not been traded yet. There are seven teams right now, according to early reports, they're in on Soto. Mets and Yankees are both in the mix. The Padres, the Giants, the Dodgers, the Mariners, and the Cardinals. And from what we've been gathering here, the Nationals basically have this really high price tag where they say, okay, we want four to five elite prospects or young players who are at the big level with very low service times. So we can sort of build with them. Given that price tag, I find it very hard to believe that the Washington is going to trade him right now unless they get overwhelmed and somebody meets that price. I know the Mets have checked in. Do I see the Mets getting him right now? I don't because I don't think Washington wants to send him to the National League East where they know Steve Cohen will spend the money and resign him and have to deal with him for next 15, 16 years. The Yankees have the prospect uh, capital to get it done, but I don't know if they view Juan Soto as their biggest need. I feel like they're going to worry more about getting pitching and getting a lower cost back because they do have some big stars in the lineup already. I think if he gets moved, you're looking at some of these teams here, like the Padres, like the Mariners, like the Cardinals, who have the prospects, and view it as an opportunity to say, you know what? We have Juan Soto for three pennant races. We have a chance to win the World Series if we get him. And if we don't, we can flip him later, get some prospect value back. I think the Padres are a team to watch with him, especially because this is a team that needs a bat in the worst way. They haven't had Fernando Tatis all year long. They can easily see AJ probably going, look, we get 
Tatis back healthy. We have Manny Machado. We have Juan. So that's a very difficult middle line for other teams to navigate here. The Cardinals also have the prospects. They could say, hey, you know what? Three years of Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado, Juan Soto in the middle of the lap, that's going to be terrifying for teams. Also keep in mind here the, the so situation that the Nationals are for sale. And it's hard to believe that the new Arnold group would not want a say on the Juan Soto situation. I think more likely this is going to be an offseason trade once the, the team is sold. We will figure it out here. One other thing to note here, and there's some speculation right now, the Nationals are willing to lessen the return right now in order to get rid of the rest of Patrick Cord's contract, which is dumb. And of course, it's a horrendous contract. It's got two years left, about $60 million on it. That might buy a slight prospect discount, but I don't know if that's the wisest idea. Because if you're trading a generous superstar, I wouldn't get $75 cents a dollar just to get rid of Patrick Corbin's money. It's two years. You can figure it out. The Yankees, I think, again, the idea of Juan Soto was nice. Will they actually give up the big prospects to do it? I don't know. Because keep in mind, they also have to pay him down the road. Because you basically acquire Juan Soto if you're the Mets or the Yankees. You are committing to these three years, these three pennant races, and then paying him afterwards. Will the Yankees give up Anthony Volpe, like Jason Dominguez, Peraza, and more? I don't know. Because they still, they're already paying John Carl Stanton big money until 2027. They're paying Garrett Cole big money. Pay, they got to pay Aaron Judge big money. I don't know if they're going to add another contract like that with Juan Soto. The Mets, against me before, I think they do it. But again, I don't think Washington's going to trade in the division. I think it's more likely a case of Juan Soto's the Mets going to be Steve Cohen whipping out the checkbook in 2024 and giving him a big money. The starting pitching prospect right, market right now. That's, I think, the market the Yankees going to be in. The headliners, obviously, Luis Castillo, Frankie Montez. The Yankees are going to be heavily on Castillo, and the good thing about him is he can be your number two starter. He's sliding right behind Garrett Cole in rotation. You have him for next season as well, so this is not a pure rental. You have him for another year. They should be able to get the the deal done here without Anthony Volpe or Jason Dominguez. You feel like this is going to be a Peraza trade and a couple other prospects. Remains to be seen right now if Brian Cash is going to actually get up the big pieces and not hug the prospects and actually go for it because the Yankees the past few years – even after 17 and 18, they have really been very hesitant to give up their top prospects, trying to deal from the depth of the system. That depth has weakened a little bit. This is a team, I feel like, when you're 66 and 31 over your first 97 games, you need to go all in. That's Luis Castillo. I think he's a guy who could help them win the World Series to get him. They should do it. We'll see if he's willing to get the prospects. The rental bats right now. There's a lot of Cubs, a lot of Nationals, a lot of Orioles. Wilson Contreras, the top catcher on the board. It could make some sense in the Mets. They're not going to have a top prospect for him, for a guy who could let walk after last year. I think they're still a little gun-shy after the whole uh, Javi Baez debacle across them, Pete Crow Armstrong, who has become the number three prospect in the Cup system. Plus, they have Francisco Alvarez on the way, so this would be a pure rental. I think it's a, a depends on the cost. If it comes down enough, the Mets can look into it, but I don't think they're going to go that way because they think they want to leave September open for Alvarez to come up. Josh Bell, Nelson Cruz, both on the move from the Nationals. Trey Mancini, Andrew Benintendi, all their contenders. Bats could be moved here. CJ Crone, the Rockies, you could definitely watch here. I think the Mets are going to get a big bat for sure in the mix here. I think the Yankees are going to be in the bat market. I think they're looking more for an outfielder who they can play over Joey Gallo. Maybe somebody can play center field to take the burden off Aaron Judge a little bit. The bullpen's got plenty of options as well. Headliners, obviously, David Robertson, who I think every contender worth their 
waiting goals go looking for him. Getting better on the Pirates. I think that's going to be, obviously, a big long-term buy. He's got the team for a lot of years. There's a lot of fun here. The market, I think, overall, though, and by the way, the Mets and Yankees both could be in this bullpen market. They'll both be walking out for levers. Especially if the Yankees lost Michael King to a season-ending injury over the weekend here. The teams to watch here right now are not even the traditional sellers that we know are going to be selling here. I'm looking at two teams, particularly, who have tough schedules. They're heavily around 500. They have decisions of, do we buy? Do we sell? What do we do here? I think those two teams obviously have the Red Sox and the Giants. The Red Sox right now, they got beaten up by Toronto over the weekend. They've lost five in a row. They're at 500. They're still on the fringe of that third wild card spot. They're three and a half. They're three games back of it right now behind Seattle. But Boston has a lot of injuries. They just lost Chris Sale again. They have chips they could put up for sale and, you know, try and reload for next year. The big one, honestly, your Met fan, J.D. Martinez. Be a perfect fit as a DH. You can get a lot for him with teams needing bats. You can look at the guys like Xander Bogards and Rafael Debers. I don't think Boston would move them unless they get overwhelmed. There's some pitching pieces you can watch here. So, again, Red Sox team to watch here. Another one here, the Giants. They won 108 games last year. This year they have played barely above 500 ball. They're 48-47. and 47. They've lost four in a row. They got swept by the Dodgers out of the All-Star break. The Giants has some pieces, too. There's a lot of veterans on this team who come in and play roles on teams. Like Wilmer Flores, infield piece, would be a lot of fun to see, see him end up in some, again, race situation. Jock Peterson, pending free agent, could be a lot of fun. He's an all-star. He has 17 home runs on the year. The pitching guys here, the starting pitching mark here, Carlos Rodon, having a fantastic year for the Giants. He has a player option again this year. He's going to opt out of his contract to go get paid. If the Giants decide to put him on the market, they could get a lot for him. And I think you watch the Giants here with their schedule coming up the next couple of weeks. I mean, they have seven winnable games before the All-Star break. They got the Diamondbacks for three, and then they go to Chicago. They have Chicago coming in for four. If they can stabilize themselves, they might modestly buy. But if they fall out, you could definitely see them selling because they have a lot of games against the Dodgers and the Padres down the stretch. They're going to make life very difficult for them. And that's some stuff to watch here on the trade front. We'll be keeping an eye on it for sure. A lot's going to happen with the deadline, including our first look at the Subway Series here. And we're going to talk all about it with Matt Musico from MLB Daily Dingers right after this. All right, I am back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast, getting ready for the Subway Series here. Mets-Yankees round one at City Field this week. Round two at Yankee Stadium about a month. Joining me today, blast in the past. Somebody I have not had on the podcast since 2018. Glad to have him back on. He's the creator of MLB Daily Dingers. Matt Musico is here. Matt, how are you? I'm good, Mike. What's going on, man? Not a whole lot. I got to say, for the Subway Series, a lot of the time that the regular season series doesn't have much use because usually one team stinks and the other one is good. I can't remember the last time both these teams are so good. Can you sort of get the feeling of when that was? I mean, I guess legitimately good. I mean, the Yankees are pretty much good and within playoff contention most times. I mean, I guess uh, I feel like the last time it hasn't felt, it's felt like this for me personally, I would say it's probably like that 2006-2008 Mets. I mean, obviously with more of the – uh, leading towards 2006, because I think both the Mets and the Yankees ended up with the same record that year, too, at the end of the regular season. So I feel like they were 
that's like the last time I really feel like this kind of pent up energy with these two type of contending teams with you know eyes toward October. Yeah, I remember that as well. It was definitely a lot of fun that year. And I mean, it's interesting seeing both these teams coming in here uh, and having a little bit of issues after the All-Star break. And the Yankees dropped three of five. The Mets dropped two or three of the Padres here. So it does feel like it's kind of a big get-right series both of these teams. Yeah, it, it is a big series. Just, you know, especially get this second, half on, this second half off on the right foot. I mean, when it comes to a team like the Yankees, they've played such good baseball. They're still playing baseball at nearly a 700 winning percentage clip. Uh, it, you know, they're going to have to, they're going to go through these little ups and downs. And, and same with the Mets too. I mean, they I feel like they have probably a few more issues to deal with on the, the roster side with uh, getting things set before the trade deadline and whatnot. But, uh, you know, it, baseball is all about ups and downs and, and every single team is going to go through it. And really the, what separates the good teams from the great teams, which, you know, hopefully the Yankees and the Mets certainly both are, is that they're able to minimize those uh, those valleys and maximize those peaks in performance. Yeah, and the Yankees, I think it's interesting to see how they approach this series, obviously, because they didn't set up their big pitchers for the series. They did go in with uh, Jordan Montgomery tom- uh, tonight and Garrett and uh, Domingo Herman tomorrow here. I mean, the Yankees, like, the AL lease is over here. So for them, it's just interesting to see, like, you know, what the motivation is apart from just trying to hold the Astros off. I mean, that really, apart from that, it's not really much juice for them in the second half of the season. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. And I feel like this happens with lots of teams that get off to a really great first half and build a huge lead uh, that seems to be at least most sustainable with the way they've been playing. That they need to try and find ways to keep themselves motivated and keep themselves sharp uh, because obviously the eyes are now towards October, but still, at the end of the day, I mean, Mets fans can certainly attest to this. That the Mets had a ten and a half game lead at the end of May, and now they're in a battle for the division. That things can change quickly, just with the team getting hot for a couple of weeks, and then you know the other team cooling off. So uh, they need to find ways to keep their proverbial foot on the gas pedal, and it certainly seems like uh, this would be one of those instances where they're trying to do that. Yeah, I feel like it's also more important for the Mets because obviously they're in a much tighter race. They're only up a game and a half in Atlanta entering this entering the series here, and. This is a situation where, you know, they have some, some easier games coming up than have a lot of Braves games coming up here. I mean, if they can make a statement here, at least get a split, I feel like it's a good good omen for them as they start to gear up for what they have to do at the trade deadline. Yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, I'm sure you, you also have a pulse on Mets Twitter and things like that. Every time it feels as if because we've gone through so much as Mets fans that uh, every time the Mets start to maybe like lose a game, lose two games in a row or things, this all time starts sputter like it had been, especially to start out the second half. You know, we just think that the bottom's going to just fall out. Like, all these good feelings and all the wonderful things that have happened over the first half of the year uh, is just all going to be for nothing. Uh, and it makes sense just because that's happened so many times in the past, it feels like. But, I mean, you know, like a, a game for the Mets last night, uh, obviously they watched everyone else play. And they knew that Atlanta had lost before going to their, their finale against the Padres. And again, four, five, six innings of really no offense to speak of, and then all of a sudden they just completely erupted. It just kind of feels as if this team is built a little bit different than you know, most recent Mets teams. So, But, uh, yeah, every single game counts. We knew that the Braves weren't going to go away. They just got hot at the right time, and, and really just going to make this interesting for the next few months for sure. Yeah, absolutely here. I mean, look at the pitching match of these games here. I mean, Tuesday night you have Taiwan Walker for the Mets against Jordan Montgomery for the Yankees. As of recording time, the Yankees have not officially confirmed who their Wednesday starter is. Right now, it could be the Domingo Herman or uh, Jameson Tyon. decided to skip that spot. And they have Max Scherzer for the Mets here. So you feel like the Mets kind of had the edge in both matches here, though Tuesdays is much closer. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, this, if you had to go into a two-game set with the Yankees without Jacob Degrom healthy yet, or, or at least back up on the active roster, these are two of the guys that you would want on the bump. <clears throat> They've been two of the best pitchers, two of the most consistent pitchers the Mets have had when healthy this year. So I mean, it's a definitely a huge confidence booster for them going into this head-to-head matchup with those two guys uh, lead the way. Yeah, I think the Tuesday game is more interesting, especially for the Met lineup-wise, because the Mets have had trouble with lefties here, specifically with that DH spot and guys that I know Buck Showalter's missing the match a little bit in terms of getting guys in and out of the lineup here. And I think Montgomery has a chance to have a good day as the Mets tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So that's, uh, it'll be uh, certainly be interesting to see how they go about and do things. And uh, obviously, as as it happens with every single uh, every single midseason push before the trade deadline, you know, these these types of performances really end up uh, illuminating what a team really ends up doing at the deadline. So, I mean, if uh, if the offense seems to pick it up, maybe that kind of changes how Billy Epler does things. If they don't pick it up, then you know, maybe that keeps him on the same path that he's likely thinking about already. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned Jacob DeGrom earlier. I mean, obviously, there was a thought last week that maybe he's pitching in this series, and he's pitching Tuesday night, but he has the minor setback. They push him back a little bit. He's getting a rehab start instead. Looks like he everything goes whether he should be back next week. So what do you think this return means to the Mets, assuming Jacob DeGrom gets to that last rehab start? He's in the rotation starting in Miami or Washington next weekend. Well, I think it's a huge psychological boost. And obviously, I think everyone is would continue to proceed with a lot of caution just because, you know, we've been here before, especially with DeGrom and, you know, we get him back and then he has those minor setbacks here or there. So, you know, hopefully he's able to get back into the rotation and stay there for the remainder of the year. I mean, that's really the goal for everybody. And, you know, being able to finally see him and Scherzer going back to back or just in the same series. I mean, that's just, that was crazy to think about when they signed Scherzer. And now that it's finally about to actually happen, uh, is even more exciting. So, I mean, uh, if the ground can come back and stay healthy, he provides a lot of different things for the Mets. He gives them continuity in the rotation, uh, a spot of the, a spot of the roster that really needs a little bit of continuity. Um, he gives them some top level performance, maybe takes a little bit of a heat off the bullpen, which is also another spot of need for the Mets. Uh, and even if the offense players here and there, I mean, we know that when Jacob DeGrom is healthy and pitching, he barely gives up any runs. That at least you know gives it, makes it a little bit easier for the offense to still try and you know scratch out a couple runs here and there and gain success uh, when they're not firing on all cylinders. So, I mean, he can bring a lot to the table for the Mets. And it's been over a calendar year since we've seen him pitch in a major league game, a major league regular season game. But you know, he's still even with this minor setback here and there, he still looks like the Jacob Degrom of old uh, from all the reports we've done and the the rehab starts that he has done. So it'll be nice to finally get him back in the rotation and do when he does that. Yeah, let's do a little bit here. Let's try to break down, like, the, the phase of the game for these teams, see how they, we think they stack up here. I mean, let's start at the starting pitching here. And the, I mean, the Yankees had some issues there of late. I mean, Luis Severino got hurt. He's on the IL. Should be, I say it's a minor injury. We'll see when he comes back. But I feel like overall, I think the Yankees have some good punch at the top with Garrett Cole and Cortez. I think the Met rotation is deeper overall. Yeah, I think if they're if they're healthy and all and and all firing all cylinders, yeah, I think they they could be a little bit deeper. Um, I think again, like we, we like we just mentioned, the ground is going to be the key, especially in any kind of like short series. You know, if we're thinking about you know, whether the Mets win the division or not, certainly their current odds of making the playoffs, just period, are very high. Uh, so it's obviously crucial to win a division to get that advantage, but. You throw a Max Scherzer and Jacob DeGrom up in any kind of short series, that automatically gives you an advantage. And then, you, like you said, you have that deeper rotation with 
Walker and Bassett and Carrasco too. I mean, you know, the Mets have a lot of a lot of solid arms in that rotation if they're all together. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the bullpen is fascinating for both these teams. The Mets obviously know their bullpen issues. They have Edwin Diaz. They trust. I don't know kind of nobody really else. The Yankees were better this area for a while, but. I mean, lost Michael King for the season over the weekend with the elbow injuries is a killer. Clay, Clay Holt's been fantastic. Chapman has not been the same guy this year, even before he got hurt. There are a couple of guys in there. I think Yankees bullpen is better right now. Both these teams really need to upgrade back there. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be a, a, an area need for both of them. It'll be interesting to see how the relief market starts to shake out over this next week or two. Um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like the, the message issue is very clear, especially last night. I mean, they had the 8-1 lead against the Martin we're reporting here on Monday. They just finished the Sunday night baseball game against the Padres. They were up 8-1. I think Jolie Rodriguez was in the ball game, and he couldn't he couldn't shut the door. So uh, he's the only left that they have in the bullpen right now. So, I mean, they uh, they definitely need to try and find some more support on that side of the uh, that side of the coin and probably just overall as well, too. And hopefully uh, Trevor May coming back will be uh, the kind of boost that the bullpen really needs, especially with the late game situations and whatnot as well. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk about the lineups too here because the Met lineup kind of documented as well. It's like they have a very good top five. They brought in Daniel Vogel back to try and bolster their uh, pop from the DH spot. They have issues there. The Yankee lineup I feel is a little better overall. I mean, Aaron Judge is having the best year of his career right now, so he's the headliner here. But I do feel like there are issues towards the bottom of that order. I do think they could also use another big bat here. What do you think about the lineups? Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. I mean, uh, I think one of the one of the bigger, I don't want to say criticisms, but I guess one of the things that people seem to point out about the mess is that, uh, you know, they don't necessarily um, have a lot by way of hitting home runs. They don't have a lot of, like, bona fide sluggers in their lineup. I mean, obviously, uh, Lindor can hit a few, but really, like, uh, it seems like Alonzo is really the only, like, legitimate slugger they really have in that lineup. And obviously, the DH position hasn't been um, uh, as as good as anyone was hoping for. Uh, catcher has been another black hole from the regards to the offense as well, too. So, I mean, yeah, they have some issues. And, uh, I, I think maybe the what never seems like the Yankees have any problems hitting home runs. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think it. I agree with you a little bit there. But, I mean, it certainly seems like the Mets could use a, use a, use a a legitimate bat to insert into that lineup. And obviously we know they're working on that. Yeah. I feel like they, I feel like I kind of go to the needs of both these teams that day on here. The Yankees, obviously, I feel like they're looking for more of that contact hitter. Maybe somebody can play a little center field. They've linked to Andrew Benintendi in the past. They could use another starter here. They could use bullpen. Obviously they'll be in the Juan Soto mix. I don't know if they're going to get him. I feel like their biggest need feel like to me is they need to go get like a guy who can pick, slot in on Garrett Cole because I feel like if Severino's going to be hurt and they don't know about these innings and situations for Cortez and Tyone and some of their issues like going through full season, I feel like they need another big arm. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, um, at least from what I've heard, it seems like there's some rumored momentum <clears throat> between the Yankees and uh, like pursuing Luis Castillo. And I mean, I read a couple of reports earlier, I think over the weekend, that uh, they were pretty close to making a deal this time last year and it just didn't happen. Uh, so it seems like there's maybe a little bit more motivation to actually get get the job done. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if if that's who they end up landing or if they end up uh, going a different direction and, and solidifying the rotation another way. Yeah, I also think the – I think for them, I don't think this needs to talk about enough in terms of the outfield. I think they need a guy who specifically can play center field because if I'm a Yankee fan, I'm worried about the fact that Aaron Judge is a big guy and playing center field every day is going to take a toll on him. And considering he's the mm-hmm. most important hitter, like – 
I want a guy who can play center field three, four times a week. The way Judd's not out there every single day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, know, you want to <clears throat> not necessarily deal with him with kick gloves. And I, I think I remember earlier in the year, like he is taking some pride in playing center field and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, you want to be at least be able to uh, give him an opportunity to take a breath here or there. I mean, what, what do you think are like some <clears throat> some good targets for them for the Yankees that could uh, that could play center field right now? I think the guy I watch here, I don't know if they're going to go to it because the prospect cause. I think Brian Rells would be great for them. I just don't think they're going to mm. spend their chips there and they can go for a guy like Castillo instead. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I feel like Reynolds would be a good fit for a lot of teams. It's, uh, I mean, no offense to Pirates fans, but it's unfortunate he's on the Pirates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he certainly could. Maybe somebody like Michael Taylor from the Royals would be a lower cost option in that sort of bracket. Yeah, yeah, maybe more of like a, a defense first kind of guy with the offense being a plus if he if he supplies anything, but just someone that can that can feel the position and take take some of the heat off. I agree. Absolutely, and the Mets side, I think it's fairly obvious here. I mean, they need a couple of bullpen arms, like preferably a setup guy to help bridge the gap to Diaz and a lefty. And I think the more interesting thing here is the bat because obviously they started that process with Daniel Vogel back. They they could they definitely would like so. I don't think Washington could deal into them, but I've heard this mix of names whether it's Josh Bell. J.D. Martinez of the Red Sox do fall out of his eye to sell. Trey Mancini, C.J. Crone. Who of that crop would you like to see the Mets get the most? Um, hmm. I mean, <clears throat> part of me would like Josh Bell because of the um, the progress he's made as a hitter. I mean, he I believe he's a switch hitter. He's got a, he's got a really low strikeout rate. He can hit home runs. Uh, I think he'd be uh, a pretty decent addition into the middle of that lineup. Uh, obviously Washington is selling, but then again, you know, it's within the division. So who knows how much they want to do that? Obviously selling within the division with Josh Bell instead of Juan Soto, two totally different things. But I mean, I think, you know, when I think of that group, uh, I would, I would like that group and that uh, I would like him out of that group. And then also, uh, CJ Crone, uh, obviously he gets a little bit of the benefit by playing in court at Coors field. Uh, but he also had really good year last year too. Uh, so he's put a couple of really good years together. I feel as if his, um, his performance is kind of flying under the radar a little bit, maybe because he's out in the Midwest, maybe because he's on the Rockies. I'm not really sure. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> I think uh, that would be uh, an interesting fit. Obviously, he can play first base, spell Pete a little bit here or there. And, and you know, it, depending on how other teams are viewing guys like Dom Smith, I mean, maybe they could use, like, Cliff Smith for some bullpen help. Yeah. I think the one I'm fascinated most by is J.D. Martinez. Obviously, the Red Sox have, Got beat up by Toronto over the weekend, fell at 500 here. I know he's only got nine homers here, but he does have 30 doubles, so the pop is still there. I feel like you get him in there, put him in the lineup behind Pete Alonso. I think the Met lineup takes a big jump. I know you limit versatility because he can really only DH at this point in his career, but he's a complete like level impact guy. As Billy Etler talked about over the weekend, they do need one of those. Yeah, he'd be interesting. I'm just I'm not convinced that the, the Red Sox are going to sell, but I mean, if there's any time that people are going to get convinced that they're going to sell, yeah, this weekend it was pretty. That was a pretty brutal series for them. Yeah, absolutely here. And before we go here, I mean, like, we obviously, this, this these four games are going to be fun here. But I do think the lot of ultimate goal here, I think, for both is obviously to get to the World Series, have that rematch of the 2000 Subway Series here. Like, what do you think is the chances that we could end up seeing something like that happening here, where we're sitting here in about three months talking about a Met-Yankee game one at Yankee Stadium? Well, I, th- I think it's, Probably the most possible it's been since 2000. Really, I mean, uh, like finally, it seems that these like both teams are 20 games over 500. It's not even August yet. Um, they're both sitting in first place. They've been sitting in first place for a while. I mean, they obviously both have areas where they need to improve, but they also they have 
shown over the past, you know, three and a half, four months, exactly how good they can be, especially when they're firing on all cylinders. And I mentioned before, if DeGrom is healthy and the messages get to October, having him and Scherzer in any kind of series and allowing them to pitch three, maybe four games, depending on how it's set up, if you're talking about a, a five or a seven game series, I, I would always like them at the chances whenever they're able to run out those guys on mostly normal rest uh, for uh, uh, for any kind of series. And kind of the same with the Yankees. I mean, they've shown that they can kind of uh, run through pretty much everyone, uh, even with their imperfections, too. So, I mean, uh, obviously, the postseason is a crapshoot, especially now it's a little bit longer and some extra um, extra hoops that teams have to jump through and whatnot. So there's a little bit more strategy involved. But uh, it certainly seems as if the, the odds of it happening are, are pretty good, especially much better than they have been in recent years, especially. It was really exciting to watch down the stretch here, Matt. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, if you follow social media, keep up some of your your MLB stuff over at MLB Daily Dingers. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, MLB Daily Dingers is uh, essentially for right now, it's a uh, historical look at baseball's home run history. Uh, working through a bunch of different projects right now. And uh, so check out the blog at MLBDailyDingers.com. And uh, we also uh, are posting a handful of, uh, mostly on this state type of history stuff, but just you know, just random home runs, some not so random on the, the Twitter account at, at MLD Daily Digger. Absolutely, man. We definitely check that out. Thanks for all the time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem, Mike. Thanks for having me on. The two minute drill. All right, we are back here on the podcast in the two minute drill, breaking down the captain, the seven part Derek Jeter documentary being directed by randy wilkins the first two episodes aired on espn last week we're gonna catch you all up here with one of the biggest yankee fans i know one of my co-hosts from the sky guys podcast familiar to all you people here on the just and the suffering podcast nick brad is here nick how are you doing great um i'm happy you said how many episodes it was because i actually didn't know yeah. so seven i was i didn't know if it was six or eight so seven it is yeah, it's seven. So the way they did this is a little weird. They dropped the premiere after the home run derby last week. I didn't watch it live because I was, was like conked out after that. They had one on Thursday, part two, which is the parts are covering. Then I think the next two weeks, it's two on Thursdays, three and four, three and four, and then five and six, and then part seven on, I think, August 11th, I want to say is the last one, so if the math is correct. But basically, three more weeks of Derek Jeter documentary on ESPN. That is strange. I didn't know how they were airing it. I thought it was your topic. But I noticed it. Um, I thought they were just going to like a Thursday um, schedule, but I guess not. So that's that's actually really interesting. I'm not really sure why they would do that. Yeah, I'm surprised too because I know that I don't know if you're aware of this that the one of the Subway Series games this week, the Met on Wednesday, is exclusively aired on ESPN. I'm surprised they did not throw an episode behind that. Yeah, yeah, surprising. Yeah. It's surprising, but obviously I'm not, everybody knows I'm not a Yankee fan. I want to bring on some Yankee fans here. So somebody who, I know you were really young during the early part of the Jeter years, but like as somebody, so I'm sure this must be interesting for you to really catch up on stuff that you were very young for. Yeah, I mean, I know it all. And Yankee history is like Star Wars history for me. So like, I know it all. I know exactly what happened. I know their record when the strike happened in 94. I know like, you know, Buck was gone after 95. I knew it all anyway, but it's nice to see it all. Yeah, so what do you think about what, how they did with the first two episodes of this thing? I think it's great. I, I think that a lot of people compare this to um, The Last Dance. That's what I see the, the big comparison is. And it's very different, I think, because two reasons is, one, 
you're comparing Jordan and Jeter, Jordan and Jeter, and Jeter's one of the best Yankees there is, one of the best hitters ever, like six most hits ever. But Jeter's not one of the best players of all time. Jordan is arguably, and many would say he is, the best player of all time in the NBA. So it's a different type of documentary. It's not about the best player ever. It's about one of the best Yankees ever and one of the best captains ever. It's just a very different type thing. And also in The Last Dance, there was like a big problem. Like that 97-98 season was like one anyway, but it was an issue. Yeah, There was a lot of bad blood, and then it was like they overcame it, and then they went their own ways. There's no like issue in this so i think that's what people who aren't yankee fans wouldn't really be as interested it's just a documentary about Derek Jeter, really it's not like we're leading up to this big climactic event in the 2013 season when jeter and a-rod get in a fist fight like that didn't happen yeah i did notice that too i mean the last day's comparisons also i mean you're not don't really have as many like wacky characters in this as you did in the last days and you have like you don't have phil jackson you don't have dennis rodman you don't have like some of these other like side characters here like like you did in the last day that compares more to i don't know if you saw the man the arena thing with tom brady where they basically went through brady's career basically like one super bowl season at a time i feel like this is more comparable more like that Yeah. yeah it's more like that and the only crazy character in this who i haven't hasn't spoken yet is daryl strawberry yeah and he hasn't said anything yet I mean, we we got an episode too. Oh no, he's there. We just—I don't think he said anything, though, has he? No, he has. He had that whole memorable clip about how about the fight with uh, Marlon Benitez after he hit, drilled Tino. He basically said, "If I didn't, if Joe Torre didn't grab me, I'd still be in the in Baltimore dugout fighting." Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think yeah. he's he's the only crazy character I guess we have so far. I guess we're gonna get Clemens in the next one probably, but I would say A Rod's gonna be up there for us too. Yeah, I mean, we had A Rod, but he's not really like. Like, you know, when you when you hear A-Rod speak, he's a pretty stand-up guy. He's a pretty, you know, he's a pretty professional guy. He's not really like, like Daryl Strawberry who's doing drugs every day. Yeah. <laughs> a little different yeah. Yeah, than, that, than A-Rod, who, you know, took his steroids. But A-Rod seems like a good guy. Yeah, he does. Let's start getting into some of these things here. I feel like I like part one better than part two. How do you, how do you feel about it in terms of, like, as a documentary episode? No, well, one's, you know, one is that background episode. So people are going to like that more, I think, generally. I like two more just because it shows the Yankees and it shows 96 and 98 and all that. And, like, that was, you know, more of what I knew. 95, rather, and I guess 95 was in part one, actually. Yeah. 95 and prior was all, um, you know, stuff that people, I guess, didn't really know. Like, I knew where Jeter was from. I knew his grandmother was a Yankee fan. That's how he became a Yankee fan. But I didn't really know, like, how his high school career went and stuff like that. And that's, you know, new stuff to learn. Yeah, it's new stuff to learn. And I, I learned a lot in part one because I was, I'm not a Yankee fan. So I know about some of this stuff here. I did, like, we spent a lot of time with Jeter's family and the, for that particular, his parents. And the story I got the most kick out of was the whole, like, Derek Jeter's dad watching The Price is Right when he would be, come home for half day of school. And Jeter's dad would always beat him at the price in the game and say, like, son, you got to learn. It's nothing life is fair. I thought that was fun. Yeah, it shows that his parents were very, very supportive because he always said he wanted to be the Yankee shortstop and they never told him that's not going to happen. But at the same time, they were realistic in saying that, yeah, you can do whatever you want, but things are not going to come for free. Yeah. So you could do whatever you want, but you got to work if you want it. Yeah, you absolutely do have to work if you want. And you mentioned earlier, you talked about how his grandmother's a Yankee fan. They had some good stories of him going to see the Yankee the Tiger Stadium. He was a kid and... I thought it was funny when he was like talking about how he met Dave Winfield as a little kid and then like thinking about like 
Yeah, I'm sure he got dirt from Winfield about George Steinbrenner back in the day, but obviously they're not going to air any of that because they don't want to like piss off the Steinbrenner family. I also find it odd that Winfield remembered. Yeah. Like how would how would Winfield probably met so many kids, right? How does he yeah. remember that he met Derek Jeter? I'm sure he's been refreshed on that story, but like basically when Derek yeah. was like, I told the kid he probably put like put it together in his mind eventually. Yeah, but um definitely, definitely interesting that Jeter was I don't know, I just find it so cool that he just spent his whole life not knowing but thinking this is what I'm going to do. And that's exactly what he did. Yeah, it's exactly what he did. I mean, we see him in high school, too. You see, you see his high school career about his, how he has his goals. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be the number one player in, in that nation in, in high school. It's basically, that was also funny that at the time, I think in the baseball America, I think rankings or whatever it was, that he was number five and Johnny Dane was number one in the high school class. And then he, he ends up playing with him later on. But he basically says, I'm going to be number one. And he works already gets me number one. Coming out of Calvin, Michigan, which we know is not a baseball hotbed, so really credit to his hard work. Yeah, absolutely. That's what he's known for. I mean, he's known for working harder than just about anybody. And like I said, Jordan is arguably, and many would consider him the best player of all time in the NBA. No one is telling you Derek Jeter is the best player of all time in Major League Baseball, but he might have the strongest work ethic of anyone in baseball, might be the best leader of anyone in baseball, and maybe the best winner of anyone in baseball. And that's why they made this documentary. Yeah, I mean, he's also one of the faces of the 90s in Major League Baseball, too, which I think yep. does help draw it. And I do think also it's also interesting setting up a lot of the Yankee situation in the early 90s or how they weren't doing so well. And then that we thought it was good we had Winfield in there because we had the whole George getting banned for dealing with gamblers trying to take up dirt on Winfield. We got to see basically that Stick Michael takes over and gets to sort of start building the right way, not trading all the prospects away. I did like that they sort of threaded that in, but also point out, hey, if George doesn't come back, this might not work because Stick might have been too patient. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, uh, kind of weird that like <clears throat> nowadays, like George was suspended for two and a half years from baseball from hanging out with a gambler. Yeah. Would that be even an issue now? I think that gambling is more of a stick, social stigma at that point. Plus, I think he was just using him to dig up dirt. He could use to blackmail Dave Winfield. And that was sort of the big issue. It's very interesting. Another thing that's interesting is you had mentioned that, like, the Yankees in the early 90s, it seemed like they weren't, you know, all there, right? Yeah. And bad seasons from, like, 89 to, like, 92, they weren't good. Yeah. And one one of the things that's been known – now, not so much anymore because they just went the decade of the 2010s without winning a World Series. That the only wor- decade they hadn't won a World Series since the 20s was the 80s. Yeah. Did you know, you might have known this, in 1980, the decade from 80 to 89, the Yankees had the most wins in baseball? Yeah, they were a team that, like, if the wild card was in existence, they might have had a chance to actually get to World Series. And Matty Lim at the playoffs at 495. Yeah, in 1985, the Yankees won 97 games and did not make the playoffs. Now imagine winning 97 games and not making the playoffs. That will never happen anymore. Yeah, I don't like, especially with the now they're expanding the playoffs even more. That will, yeah, that will never happen ever again. But just an interesting thing to think that like Battingly didn't make the playoffs, but he had the most win. And really, his decade was the 80s. Still playing the 90s too. He's, I guess, he played in both. But like in the 80s, when Mattingly was Mattingly. Never made the playoffs. It's crazy to think. Yeah, something I talked about it last year. I was reviewing the Met East Success documentary about how, like, 
they were another team that would have benefited massively from the wild card because they had like a string of like I think from like eighty four to ninety. I think they won an average on like ninety five wins and only made the playoffs twice. Yeah, very true. Yeah, and I do think the stick Michael Lewis is interesting. I did also enjoy the Jeter draft story, and then he basically said going in, he knew who he picked either number one or number five because he had gotten good words from both. Yep. Houston takes Phil Nevin number one. And we have the, I forget the name of the scout here, but he's been in baseball 50 years. Basically, he has Rice Report said, Jeter's a good player who wins multiple championships. Houston ignores the report. He resigned. I thought that was a great anecdote for that, for that story. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I do remember Phil Nevin yeah. as a player, and now he's um, manager of the Angels. Yeah. And he actually coached for the Yankees a few years, too. Yeah. I remember his name. So, like, hearing him was like, oh, Phil Nevin. The other names I didn't recognize. Yeah, the other names here... The Indians took righty Paul Shuey. The Expos took lefty Billy Wallace. The Orioles took center fielder Jeffrey Hammonds. And the Reds, and the, this document tells you that they didn't want to take him because they already had Barry Larkin. And that they took uh, center right fielder Charles Matola. So those are the trivia, the back of a trivia question. Next time you go play trivia, night, yeah. the five guys got picked out of Dark Jeter. And to be fair to the Reds, Larkin did play until 04 and was pretty good until like 2000. So I guess it makes a little sense to you're like, oh, we don't need a shortstop. I, you put yourself in the shoes of their front office and there's a shortstop there and you have Barry Larkin. Maybe you don't do that. Maybe it's not the craziest thing. Yeah, you don't. And then I thought this is my favorite part of part one is that they actually did get the footage from Jeter's family of him getting the phone call, basically, that the Yankees drafted him and the reaction immediately after. That was really cool. Yeah, almost looks like it was like filmed on purpose to be in a documentary one day. Yeah, because I mean, I, I thought it was great. He was talking about, you know, like, oh, like I like told everybody, don't call me between this time. I'm expecting a phone call. And then like, I'm assuming that's when the family knew to set out because they figured it'd be a first round pick. I thought it was great. They actually got the immediate reaction and great from from for Wilkins to get the Jeter family to share that. Yep. And uh uh, this is like the stuff about Jeter that I didn't know. Like I didn't, I knew he went sixth overall. I, I didn't know like how it happened, how it came to be, but the people before him and his high school stuff. So this is what I found interesting about part one. Absolutely. But, um, you know, the reason I know Jeter is because of what he did as a Yankees. So that's why it marked part two was better for me. Yeah. So going on part one, you're talking about some of his minor league stuff. He seems sign. He struggles early in the minors. I mean, I thought it was interesting at the end when he gets promoted, I think, to high A, so they get more at-bats. So he basically said, I want to go home. I was just so upset with myself. And then that's when he first meets Posada and Pettit, and then, like, he 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 tries to, like, be friends with Pettit and Pettit big times. So I thought that was also interesting. Yeah, well, Pettit said he didn't remember it that way, so I don't yeah. know. Maybe Cheater's lying. Well, I mean, I'm sure there's a little embezzlement there. I mean, we Jordan did embezzle some things in the last dance. So who knows? But, no. um very cool to see them like all together down there. And you don't think about that as much when these guys come up from like the minors and like a team as a young team, let's say like, let's just say, I don't know, a random team, like the Marlins, these guys all come up. They're not like new teammates. They've been playing together sometimes for years. Yeah. If they've been, if they went up the minors together, people don't think about that. No, they don't. And another thing was interesting. I pointed out here is like, we're let like, G also point out, I think in part two, we mentioned it, but possibly in part one, like that he's lucky to not come up on the social media era here because you can imagine today, like if the Yankees took their first, took him in the first round of 2022, and all of a sudden we found he's had 56 errors in one year in the minor leagues. Like the Yankee Twitter would be going bananas, and even Buck Showalter said I had to call down and ask ask the minor league guys, like, can this kid actually play? 
Yeah, that's pretty crazy. They had 56 hires. I, I always said that if you want to look at his career, and people like to really are very polarizing with Jeter. They either say he's incredible or he sucks. You hear that a lot back and forth with people. And like, I think it's like the like think it's both worlds. I think he was an incredibly overrated fielder, but he was an he, he the fact that I have to say this is crazy. He's an incredibly underrated hitter. He has the sixth most hits ever in baseball, and that, that can't be overstated. He's one of the best hitters the game's ever seen. And one of and he was not a good fielder at all, but it didn't really matter because they won five World Series with him. Yeah, I mean, you take you take that trade off any day of the week. Yeah, and it wasn't like he was. I mean, advanced statistics and metrics will tell you he was bad in the field, but it wasn't like it cost the Yankees games. Yeah, I would certainly say that here, and I also think the other interesting part, part one, the last thing I want to touch on in the first part here is like. So we see the story of the 95 Yankees, how obviously 94, they were at the best record in the American League for the strike, and then they don't get the club shit out. 95, they make, they make the plus of the wild card here. We see Jeter come up, play for two weeks, and Tony Fernandez gets hurt and sends, gets sent back down to AAA. And then we find out later on that basically, this is something I didn't know about here, is that when the playoffs started, that basically they brought all the kids up and had them like on the bench in uniforms. They could experience what playoff baseball was like. I thought, that cool. was, I thought that was very cool. I did think it was funny that Buck basically threatened them, basically saying, hey, like, I do not be see, do not want to be seeing you out in the streets in New York during October. And apparently, you guys just stuck stayed in their hotel for two straight weeks. Yeah, and I don't know if you know this. Tony Fernandez uh, did pass away. Yeah, I don't know if you knew that. I did not know that. Yeah, he he uh, he passed away right before the pandemic started, and he's kind of like the. Uh, and he got hurt, and then he got hurt again. If I'm not recall if I'm not if I recall correctly, and that's what kind of got you to the job. So like, he's kind of like the what got Derek Jeter into the league when it did kind of thing. But 95 Yankees are like the beginning of my memory where like, I don't really remember it much because I'm like three, but I do recall that they existed and they were good that year. That's all I really knew. Yeah. I'm sure. I didn't really, I didn't really understand like how baseball worked back then, but in 96 is actually when I started learning it. Yeah. I'm sure you're so, I'm sure your brother probably, your brother's a couple years is my age. I'm sure you probably remembers the whole King Griffey Jr. running down, basically running from first to home when I play, knock the Yankees out. Yeah, I'm sure. And I seeing it there, I, I like when watching it, I didn't remember it, but um, seeing it is, is uh, kind of upsetting. Yeah, definitely is. And we're going to part two. Now we're going to start talking about this one. And then I said, they do bring Joe Torrey into the story here and they do set up a little bit of like, all oh, like how he was basically a three-time failure as a manager, how the Yankees got ripped for hiring him. I think Joel Sherman says at the end of part one, if you see what happens at, in the 95 offseason where Don Matley retires, Buck gets fired, makes some big changes, and Joe Torrey comes in the manager, he's like, you never could have got me to believe this would be the start of a dynasty. Yeah, that's very true. Kind of reminds me of, um, I mean, you know, we got a long way to go. So I don't be, be honestly surprised that they even won this year, but it reminds me of, in a little bit, how like this past off season for the Yankees, a lot of people considered it a disaster. Yeah, and it was just like, what are they doing? And then they come out and they've really, you know, they've played so well so far. I mean, obviously, you got, you know, if you can win three World Series in the next six years, then we can make this comparison fairly. But uh, they, it reminds me of that. It just seems like it was an off season that everyone was like, "Really, this is what they did?" Oh man, we were so close, we were doing so well, and now I'm not even sure anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. And well, apparently not. Yeah. I also want to give a shout out to a friend of the podcast, Rick Cerrone, the former Yankee PR director. We saw him get interviewed in part two, so I'm 
yeah, Tarkis talked about how Jeter was so media savvy at a young age. He was like studying the manuals from that age. I want to give Rick a shout out as well. And I also want to point out here that the story he's that they mentioned earlier about Tony Fernandez getting hurt on this, like in the spring training where he breaks his arm, and they do have this discussion here where the Yankee front office is saying, you know, should we trade for a shortstop? And they're literally talking to I think the Pirates about Felix Felix or I think it's Pirates and Mariners about Felix Fermin and. One of the guys going the other way was going to be Mariano Rivera going dealt the other way. And that's one of the great, like, what-ifs in history. And the Yankees made the right choice, obviously, not to make that trade. But you imagine the world where Mariano Rivera is, a, is like a Mariner and Felix Fermin is the Yankee shortstop at 96. Yeah, it's, I mean, I can't, you know, I know you can't fall fallacy to the predetermined outcome, as Michael Kay says. But you would imagine there's no chance they win four World Series without Jeter and Rivera, essentially. Yeah. I guess even five World Series. I know that that one doesn't really fall in with the same team, but you know both of them were still on it. The nine, I mean. Yeah, I did like sort of seeing a '96. They progressed it pretty. They pretty much went through the entire playoffs. They went through all that stuff. The Tony Tarasco thing. Anything really stick out for you from the '96 section of this? Um. Well, yeah, '96 was like the year that I remember. You know, from what I remember, like that was, I guess, had the year I got into baseball and started understanding it, and I understood like what the playoffs were, what the World Series was. Like I understood it, and you know that was the year. That was the year that broke the seal, if you will. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And especially after going down 2-0 to Atlanta, that was like a huge deal that they were able to win even game three, like with, with Jim Larratt's home run. And then winning that series was oh, – they were underdogs. and I don't think it was heavy. I don't know the, the numbers. I don't have them in front of me. But I know they were underdogs in that series, but I don't think it was a huge – like there's no chance the Yankees would, but it was like the Yankees are back when they won that. This is the first World Series since 78. It was the first time they were in the World Series since 81, I believe. So that was like what put the Yankees back on the map. Yeah, I do remember, especially when we talk about part four, a game four of the documentary, when the Braves jump out of that big 7 nothing lead, and then the Yankees chip away, chip away, chip away, and they tie it on the home run from Lairitz. And Jiris says, like, at that moment, we knew we had them. And I'm, sure, I'm like, sitting there, yep. like, I'm like, that's, like, that's, that's, that shows you how tight that group was. I'm sure a lot of the fans didn't feel that way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, uh, you, you know, that, like I said, that was a team that really broke the seal, and you have a lot of guys on that team that were not on the '98 team. Like the '98, that like the, for example, look at the '96 team, look at the '99 team. It's a very different roster. Yeah, I mean, you got like guys like Charlie Hayes, Wade Boggs, like I yep. Jimmy Key in that '96 team. A lot of those guys are not there. Wetland, Wetland, Wade Boggs is the funny one to me. Yeah, because I remember they had Wade Boggs. I always said they had Wade Boggs on that team, and that was um, his only World Series championship in his career. And the funny thing is, he he was obviously the third baseman, right? He's a Hall of Fame third baseman. Yeah. First ballot Hall of Famer. But I always never understood, like as a little kid, I always said, if Wade Boggs was a Hall of Famer and third baseman, why wasn't he the one catching the fly ball to end the game? <laughs> in the last game, it was it was Charlie Hayes. Yeah. I never, I still don't really fully understand it. Was Wade Boggs not that good back then? I don't really fully, it was Hayes also good and they split time. I don't really fully understand it. Yeah, I don't. I didn't really get that either. But like, I did think it was interesting. We also got a lot of the aftermath winning the World Series because obviously that team became like folk heroes and became very beloved. Because at that point, like the the 
mid eighties Mets sort of faded out. The Mets was being bad again. The the town was right to be grabbed. This Yankee team really grabbed the town. Really, has not let go since. And it was at least seeing Jeter get all these opportunities. See all the rappers in the documentary talk about how Jeter became like a folk like a folk icon. I thought that was definitely a lot of fun. Yeah, that's it's. I'm assuming what Aaron Judge goes through right now, but to a lesser extent because Jeter won the gold. At that time in his career. And also, as Jeter mentioned in that with the rise to stardom thing, he had mentioned the um he had mentioned this um like the social media stuff and like how you know he had like back then everyone was having a good time. They were going out and there was celebrities everywhere. There was Jay-Z and Jada Kiss and rappers everywhere and celebrities, you know, like Denzel Washington and J-Lo and, and, and everyone had a good time and now they got to watch what they do because of social media and stuff and shows the difference between like, you know, Jeter and Judge, who's like kind of like the disgenerate, if you had to pick someone on their team to be this generation Jeter, you'd pick him. But very, very different because, you know, I'm sure Aaron Judge has to watch what he does a lot and Jeter didn't have to worry about that. You know, Jeter also, Judge is also married at this point, and Derek Jeter was single at this point of his career, so, like, he was, I'm sure he was getting around, and... Yeah, also, yeah. I mean, also, Judge is 30, yeah. and Jeter was 21. Yeah, this is a good use of Daryl Strawberry in this documentary, because every remembers how Daryl Strawberry sort of screwed up, like, his prime with the Mets because of his drug use, and he basically said, like, I talked to Jeter, said, hey, like, I'm gonna keep an eye on you, you tell me if anything's going on, and that, that was a good influence to have on him, on Jeter early in his career. Well, when did Daryl kind of, like, stop? I think, like, once the Yankees brought him, I think it was, like, 96 they brought him in. Like, I think at that point, like, he had, once he went out west, he sort of got messed up again. I think the Yankees gave him a second chance, and he was on the straight and arrow for a while. Okay. All right. Well, is he still okay? <laughs> as far as I'm aware, because I know they did a documentary on him and, and Doc a few years ago. I feel like he's got a better grip on his situation than Doc does. Well, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, we haven't, we haven't, I don't remember if Doc was in this yet, but we also got the off-field stuff here. The beginnings of the Jeter A Rod relationship, and did you know that like G- that A Rod went to like some showcase in Miami when Jeter was playing high school ball and just watched him there, and then they became friends. No, there? I didn't know that at all. I always just figured that no more Jeter and A Rod were just paired together by the media because they were all good shortstops at that time. Yeah, that's just what I figured. I had no idea that there was actually some sort of relationship there, and I know the relationship got got. Um, spiraled out of control by the media where they really wanted a story with it and in reality the guys were good friends growing up or not growing up but like you know getting into the league and then they didn't really drift apart they just weren't really that close anymore and the media made such a huge deal over it yes because they wanted a story like they never really had a huge like i hate this guy he hates me we're enemies type of thing they just they were friends they weren't best friends and the media needed them to be best friends yeah, I also feel like a Rod also is showing a little bit of insecurity there because they talk about, oh, like, you know, like, why is Jeter standing over me in the photo? Like, why is he getting all the attention when I have better numbers? There was a lot of that. You sort of see being planted. It's gonna, you figure when we get to a Rod show up on the Yankees, it's going to lead to some drama there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how true all that stuff is. I really don't. Well, I mean, we saw A Rod address. We haven't heard, really heard Jeter address any of that any of that stuff yet. I figure that's coming from him when the A Rod shows up on the Yankees in one of these next couple episodes. Yeah, I would imagine the next episode will take us through to 2001, and then we'll go from there. Which is also an interesting thing because the Jordan documentary, the the last dance that is went like, if 98 was the big deal, there's no big deal in this. Yeah, 
it's just going to go through his career. So I would imagine like you're going to have an episode that goes over like the Giambi years, you know? Yeah, I think from what I would guess here, I mean, they did open on his last game a couple, I think both episodes. So I feel like that's going to be sort of the point we're driving towards with this thing. But I do think that like, you're right. I think we're going to get probably like the 99, 2000, 2001 era. This one, maybe we get a rod at the end of the second hour that we're getting this week. Yeah. And then I guess they'll go with an episode that's like, Oh five to Oh eight. And then do like an Oh nine to 12 and then yeah. finish it off. Yeah. That'd be my guess here. And I do think in terms of the 98 season, I think they did a good job sort of showing how this group was coming together here. And this was obviously the sequence where we get the big fight with the Orioles. We get the Indian stuff where I thought this was a good story where they're down to one. El Duque is pitching game four and the day of he's like helping the hotel staff clean up plates and they're calling Torre and it's like, is El Duque raised? Like he's helping the waiter. I think he'll be fine. Yeah, that was funny. Yeah. yeah. And that would have been rough. Like, you know, like the Mariners won 116 games and just lost. Yeah. Like, you, you know, that just imagine that you come all that way and then you just lose and then it's over. Like you worked all that for the whole season. And you just lose in the first round. Happens all the time in football, but doesn't really happen. I mean, it happens a lot in baseball too, but you know, it's just, it sucks when it happens. You win 100, 110 games maybe, and you just lose. Yeah, I think that's interesting too because we did also get the bit from 97 where they lose to the Indians in the divisional series. They don't make another World Series run. They lose to the Indians again. I also feel the pressure on that team just gets like skyrocketed going forward. Absolutely, yeah. Kind of reminds me of um, a little bit like when the Dodgers won like 107, 106 games a few years ago. They just lost in the first round. Like yeah. No one remembers that Dodger team anymore because they lost. Who cares? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, they do win the World Series. I also thought it was a great line. I think I forget who said it was whether it was Buster Olney or Joel Sherman, one of these media types. They said like when they played the Pirates in the World Series, basically like a fly being in the path of a steamroller. Yeah, they crushed the Padres in that series. I know all the the calls. They used to have some CD. It was like a CD, and it had I don't know twenty track call it, and all the odd number tracks were John Sterling and Michael Kay announcing something that happened throughout that season, like a big yeah. moment. And all the even number tracks were songs. And I don't know how the song had to do with the Yankees, but I had that CD and I used to listen to them over and over. Like the one, like I think it was Michael Kay's call of Martino's grand slam in game one. Kind of cool. Yeah, it was, it was definitely cool. And I do also think like we get the, we get them winning here and they, the end the documentary here on, the art his first arbitration hearing, which is after he's been in the league three years. They've won two World Series. He goes in and asks for five million bucks. Yankees offer three point two, and then they go to the arbitration hearing where basically they're telling, Oh, like you don't hit for enough power, you don't do this. And this is something we've seen with the Yankees over the years, like where they love to win the arbitration hearing. You know, famously that Dell Batansis, they had a hearing with him and he was never the same after that. They they nearly got into a big fight with Judge this year before they settled it for the hearing here. And I think it was interesting that, like, that way that went down bothered Jeter immensely. And he, the line I put here, he says, he says the NSO, it's like, loyalty one way is stupidity. I thought that was definitely interesting. It's like a foreshadow of what him later in his career. True. But, I mean, there, I think it almost seems to me like ESPN Films is trying to create an issue when there really wasn't one. Like, there might, there might have been a little issue here where Jeter was taken off. Absolutely. But you can't tell me in 2009, Derek Jeter was upset with the Yankee front office. Like, he, he didn't care. 
it didn't ruin his career with the Yankees. It, sure, it has with people, like you mentioned, Batances, but they're trying to create some sort of drama in the story. Because in reality... It's not much. Yeah, like if you're going to do a documentary, there should be like, a, this is how it started, then things were going well, but then this happened, and then it ended up okay. There is no then this happened in this. Yeah. Him and A-Rod were not enemies. They didn't hate each other. Jeter didn't hate Brian Cashman. Derek Jeter's biggest an- enemy was the fan saying that he was overrated. That's it. Yeah, I do feel like this is just them setting up. They're going to dive more into Especially remember, like, after that, he signs. They haven't gotten there yet. The doctor, but he does sign that 10 year, $189 million deal. I think in 99, I want to say. That runs through 08. And then I think before the 09 season, I think it was somewhere in that range. Maybe it was 2000 he signed it. But after that deal expires, he basically has that big thing where he wants to resign the Yankees. The Yankees play hardball, making make him take like a very low offer compared to like what his reputation had been. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's the sort of drama we're going to get into here because he does end up going to ownership later on. And I wonder if we're going to touch on that if it's going to be on the Yankee stuff. There is, I think it was 07, actually. Wasn't it 07? Yeah. When did he sign that contract? I don't remember, actually. But I know he, uh, I know know, A-Rod was 07. I don't remember, actually, when uh, Jeter signed the big contract and when it ended. Yeah, I'm trying to look here about about this one here because I'm looking at the history of Jeter's contracts because I know I thought he signed the contract in like 2000 you might be right because I'm looking here like he does sign yeah it was it was after 2010 he signs the 10 year 189 and then then he signed a four year I think it's 351 I think the that I think that was the agita period when they were they were trying they're talking about potentially replacing him and then he just ended up taking a little less than what they initially wanted to offer him and at that point, I think it was time anyway. I think his career, you know, was obviously very good in the beginning and, and the middle was great. And I, I think once you got to, uh, he had a good season in 2012. I'll always remember that. 2012 was a big year for him. But really, once you got like past the World Series in 09, he kind of wasn't the same, except for that one year he had in 2012. Yeah, because he had 2012, he had the one year that he breaks the ankle in 13. The basic, at the end of the playoffs, that you're basically costing the entire 13 season. And then he comes back for the yeah. one last year. The 13 season, Mike, you have to hear this. Because that was a season where the Yankees had a pretty good roster. But they were unbelievably bank, uh, banked up. So you got to hear this. I, it might take me a minute. Just give me one second here. All right. The Yankees' starting lineup for opening day of the 2013 season was Brett Gardner in center field, Nunez, Eduardo Nunez in set shortstop hitting second, Cano hitting third, Kevin Euclid is cleanup, Vernon Wells hit fifth, Ben Francisco hit sixth, Ichiro was seven, Jason Nix hit eight, and Francisco Cervelli hit ninth. Yeah, was that the year that Granderson broke his wrist preseason? Also? Granderson was hurt, Teixeira was hurt, A-Rod was hurt, and Jeter was hurt all to start the season. All four of them were injured at the beginning of the year. Yes, I'm looking at the uh, team here. I'm looking at, like, the guys who played the most games in that team. Obviously, A-Rod was there, but, like, I mean, he missed some time, too. I mean, you look at... They for- all missed time in the beginning, and didn't I... Men- you mentioned Granderson, right? Yes. Yeah, so Granderson, A-Rod, Teixeira, and Jeter were all injured for a large portion of that season. Yeah, and look at the rotation behind uh, Sabathia there. It's like Hiroki Kuroda... Uh, Pettit, Phil Hughes, and Von Nova. Yeah, I just think of that team and say, all right, well, you would have had you would have had Cervelli anyway, but you would have had Teixeira, Cano, Jeter, A-Rod, Granderson would have been in center, 
And then it's not that bad. You have Gardner, and then you have Ichiro and right field. It's not that bad of a team. No, it's not, because I'm curious how they're going to handle those last couple of years, because, like, after, yeah. after like, 11, like, the Yankees, I mean, after that Tiger run, they sort of, like, do fall off a little bit where they get to, like, Yankee bad, which is, like, average for everybody else. Yeah, from so after that broken ankle, and I believe it was in game one. Yeah, it was game one of the Tiger series. It was, like, extra innings, I think. Yep. So after that game, pretty much, they missed the playoffs in 13 and 14 and 16, and they lost the wild card game in 15. So they hadn't been to a real playoff series from 12 to 17. Yeah. So those years after 12, it's really just going to be like, and then it was over kind of thing. And then, and like a lot of the years, you know, you know, you grew up during it too. A lot of years, like 02, 03, 04, 05, 06, 07. 10, 11, just the Yankees losing in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking up. All right. of them. Yeah, I mean, like 2013, Derek Jeter played only 17 games. Yeah, he was mostly out that season. I think that they'll probably show that'll be, that could be a big part of it, actually. The a big, like, you know, the ending of the thing could be like Jeter got hurt and he really wanted a go on his final, terms. final run on his terms, not going to go out on an injury type of thing. And that could be what motivated him to say 2014 to be my last season and I'm going to go out with a bank. It's ironic we have with Mariano too, because Mariano, I remember, tears the Achilles when he's like, like oh, shagging the outfield balls. in Kansas City. Yeah, and then he misses the rest of twelve and thirteen, comes back for a swan song. Yep, yep. It's crazy to have the two different Yankees like back to back years. It kind of happened with um, with A Rod too. Although A Rod, they kind of getting ready to shove him off. Was, the wasn't stage it? Was it an injury though with him? No, there was, there was getting ready to shove him out the door at that point. Yeah, well, they they literally did shove him down the. Uh... They literally did shove him out the door, if you remember. Yeah, they did, and they forced him to retire midseason. They did. It was crazy. I remember they they had the A Rod night. I, t- I think like they only scheduled one game where he's gonna hit cleanup, and then he never played again. Yep, I was there. Yeah, it was a crazy night for sure. I'm sure we'll get more A Rod coming up here. I mean, we got part three, part four coming up next week here. Like, what are you looking forward to in these next couple episodes? You think? I want to see more uh, Red Sox stuff. To me, that was the, the best thing about growing up at the time that we grew up when it comes to baseball was the Yankees were obviously so great when we were young. Like for me, it was between like they were winning World Series when I was like four from four to eight years old, which is great. But then once I got to like middle school, when I started really liking baseball, it was the Yankees were good and the Red Sox were good and everybody else in baseball was just kind of there. And they ran the show and watching those games in Fenway with Manny and Ortiz and Pedro and Damon. And you can go on. I can name the whole team that they had and the whole Yankee team. It was they hated each other. And like those games were incredible. Like the game that Jeter flew into the stands after catching that fly ball in 2004. Like that's what it, like the games mattered so much. Like the Red Sox games, you had to prepare for them. It's like they're playing the Red Sox this weekend. Like, OK, we got to watch all these games. You cleared the schedule. You watch the Yankee Red Sox games. Not so much anymore that way, but it was awesome back then. Yeah, I also want to see like sort of the end of the original dynasty from like two thousand the two thousand one season. I mean, we've gotten plenty. I'm sure we get some more on like the run the team went on after nine eleven, where they sort of like United the City here. I do want to sort of get like your perspective on like how that team sort of broke up after that World Series loss because I mean at that point you had basically I really broke up. I mean O'Neill retires, Brosius is gone, Tino's gone. 
That's when Giambi comes nah, in. Block's gone. Nah, Block's gone. Like they're all pretty much gone. Except it's like except the core the core four stay. They're bringing a bunch of mercenaries around them. Start with Giambi. Yeah, I feel I always felt bad for the core four. So who, who or, or felt bad about something with the core four? Who was the core four, Mike, for the audience? It was Jeter, Pettit, Posada, and Rivera. Yeah, and I feel like there's someone missing. Yeah, because it's. I mean, they talk about this a little bit. I mean, JJ on his podcast is doing recaps of the episodes, and they talk about how Burrow yeah. Burrow's basically the fifth Beatle of the group because he gets there before all of them and retires before the rest of them. Yeah, but Bernie, I feel like he was always left out of that group, and he should have been involved. Like he, if you think about it, this is no disrespect to Jeter, obviously, but there is a very realistic chance. I don't know if this is true. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I think it might be true. At no point in Jeter's 20-year career was he the best player on the Yankees. That might be true. Maybe 2006. There was one year where he nearly won the MVP. I think that's probably... 06 is the yeah. area you're talking about. Yeah. I think he deserved to win the MVP, but Bernie Williams was their best player during their dynasty. Yes. During the mid-2000s years, A-Rod was their best player. Then it became whoever. And I don't even know who it was in 2012. They didn't really have any real players, to be honest with you. But maybe Sabathia, honestly, Rivera. Might have still been A-Rod also. Could have been, yeah. But that's what makes, I think, Jeter so special. Is he was never, I don't even think there was ever a time in baseball when Jeter was the best shortstop in baseball. Maybe, again, that season. But he's a magical player because he was always up there. Yeah. And he was not only up there, he was right. He's behind all-time greats. Yeah. I think for me, that's the thing I'm most excited for, is that and A-Rod showing up and his initial reaction. I've never really gotten that on the record. In terms of, I'm curious, like, if he's going to try and be PC, if he's going to let us know how he's really feeling when, like, he hears that they're getting A-Rod. I would imagine he would feel, like, really, really, really loved because they went out and got a guy who, I don't think it's a secret, was a better player than him, right? Yep. And they made it. The other guy moved positions. Yeah. I think that's enormous respect for Derek Jeter. Yeah, I think that's going to be the stuff to watch here. I feel like we're – I got to look up the rundown here because I think there's a listing online of, like, what the episodes are going to be. I do feel like – Yeah, there, there is. I, mean, I can take a look at it after. Yeah. I would suspect we're getting to the starting with the getting to the start of the A Rod stuff next. Like, I would not be surprised if like we get end. I think part three on the one team. I think I would not surprise if part four is sort of the uh, Red Sox collapse. Uh, don't want to hear it. I feel like that's the dramatic point of where you're leaving off. Part four is like uh, after that, what happens? Yeah. Because you get another World Series in there too. They have the O three one. They forget, always forget they get to, and they lose to the Marlins. Yeah, I remember us being so pissed off. I didn't even watch. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all we got here, Nick. Thanks all the time. I really appreciate it. I mean, we're also want to let the audience know you're with you on the Sky Guys. We're going to be back this week. We're going to be talking some Jedi Fallen Order on the Sky Guys podcast. That's right. Wednesday, uh, well, we're recording Wednesday night. I think the episode should be out Thursday or Friday, but uh, going to be a great time. Yeah. Plus, we did a stream last week with our friend Nick D'Alessio on Twitch, Recovery Room 90. We, he started playing through Fallen Order. We Hung out with him when he got to the first two planets, and we had some fun, like, chatting stuff, and he only died once, so good job by him. Yeah, great job by him. Yeah. We'll talk to him again coming up. If you want to follow you on Twitter, how can I do that? Nick Fry underscore nine. Just retweeting stuff from this and this guy, guys. Absolutely, Nick. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. All right, and that will do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Matt Musico, for coming on here, talking all about the Subway series. Nick Fry just heard. We broke down part one and two of The Captain Interesting look at the Derek Jeter documentary. Yankee fans are going to love this. Casual baseball fans are not so sure to get much out of it, but if you're a Yankee fan, definitely nostalgia feels for this thing. 
you want to work at stuff like this podcast, click on look at the big announcements from Marvel over at Comic-Con over the weekend. They basically laid out all their big projects for phase, the rest of Phase 4, Phase 5, started Phase 6, movies, shows galore. Work it all down. Check out the blog over at justinthesuffering.wordpress.com. Just got the Sky Guys podcast seat here. We did a Twitch crossover last week with my friend Nick D'Alessio, the Recovery Room 90. We play, like ch- chat along with him as he played to the getting a Fallen Order. We're going to be doing a podcast, Nick, this coming week about the full plot of Jedi Fallen Order. If you watch Obi-Wan Kenobi, there's a lot of Fallen Order references in there. You can subscribe to the Sky Guys podcast. It's going to be exclusively on there. So, again, Sky Guys podcast, following all the podcasts back when we went to the top of the show. Just follow me on Twitter, mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. That's going to do it for this week's podcast. Coming up next week, we're going to get some football month here because we've got some training camps coming up. We're getting ready for football season. We have a few more about the captain and more. Until we have a better week than that, San Francisco Giant fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.